When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to the second RockneyCast. First, I wanted to thank all of you who reached out to me following my very first RockneyCast for your idea suggestions, your feedback, ideas you liked, ideas you didn't. You know, this show is going to be a conversation. It's going to be an opportunity for us to learn about one another. So I really encourage you to reach out with uh, ideas for future episodes, what you did like and what you didn't like, because this is also your show, too. Uh, We're going to have a lot of fun. So if you have any suggestions, uh, reach out to me at rockneycast at gmail.com so we can improve the show and continue making a good show that we're all going to enjoy working on. For today's show, we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to learn a lot and we're going to discuss a very important question that we must find the answer to. And that is, is if our progressive and our democratic ideas are so great, why do Republicans keep winning so many elections? Especially in our rural places, especially in our red states. This is a question we got to get right. I'm certainly not the first person to raise this issue. I think those of us, progressive Democrats especially, have been asking ourselves, um, what is the way to appeal to the rural voters, to these red state voters? What is the key? We've had a lot of arguments about that in terms of what's going to work and what's not going to work. But I do think it's important that we continue that conversation because If we don't get that answer right, we're going to see a lot of damage in this country. So for today's show, we're going to talk about several different things. I want to sort of give you a highlight of sort of what we're going to cover. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the flaws with the conservative ideology, um, its problems in terms of pure economics. And we're going to demonstrate that to you with history, a case study, um, and analysis, and I think you'll, you'll agree with me at the end of this that we really cannot afford uh, the ideology of the uh, conservative free market economics. The second thing we're going to do is, is we're going to talk about what happens psychologically when that red state voter gets in the voter booth. What motivates them to pull that trigger for that Republican? Why do they do that? Why didn't they used to do that? What made them support progressive policies in places like Iowa and North Dakota, South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin? Why did that used to be the case, that rural places were hotbeds of progressive rural politics? We're going to discuss that. Third, we're going to talk a little bit about some past and present leaders um, that knew what the hell they were doing in rural places that quickly change the dynamic with the power of their ideas and their, their charisma. Talk about future leaders that I think are going to 
are going to be able to do that and some positive trends that we're seeing. And then finally, we're going to talk about some books that I think it's important for you all to, to put on your reading list because, friends, we are not going to be able to solve the problems that we have in this country unless we dive deeply. You can't just ascertain reality through your gut reaction, through your Facebook scroll, through listening to the radio, or even worse, through listening to Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. This will only give you a superficial analysis. You need to have books to have the time to dive deeply into the nature of reality and what we need to do. Sound interesting? So let's get, let's roll. First, this question of the why. Why is it so important that we change the underlying political dynamic, especially in our red states? Some of you say that that doesn't really matter, uh, that eventually over time, uh, there's just going to be a demographic change. Uh, We already are electing a lot of progressives on the coast. Uh, We don't necessarily need to worry about that. And eventually, just the simple mathematics are going to tell us that the progressive ideology, because of its superiority policy-wise, is going to win people over. And I think if that's your view, that is a big-time mistake, because that is not the trend that we're seeing. That does not explain the rise of Donald Trump. That does not explain why we've seen Iowa, not necessarily a, a hotbed of progressive values, but a place where we had Republicans at one point that supported collective bargaining, have increasingly become more and more reactionary, more and more dysfunctional, more and more untethered from reality. This is important that we answer this question because the sheer amount of damage that has been done. So first off, let's take uh, the conservative free marketers that self-identify as such and let's take them on their own territory. What their claim is, is that we are the guardians of the economy. This is the claim that Paul Ryan makes, Milton Friedman made at one point, the great conservative economics professor. It's what a lot of the tax cut crowd argues over and over and over again. That we're the ones that will raise incomes. We're the ones that are going to drive that economy. But something you always have to ask yourself is, is that actually true? And do we see any evidence to demonstrate that? Now, the first thing that you usually get when you talk to someone who is embedded in this ideology of, well, of course there's evidence. And the first thing they'll hyperlink to is Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan is is a character that I actually really like Ronald Reagan. I'm a diehard progressive. I flirt with some socialist ideas at some point. But I think that Ronald Reagan is one of the great political leaders of the 20th century. There's a lot that I do like about him. I like his charisma. I like his belief in old-fashioned traditional values, his belief in hard work. I loved the sound of his voice, the way that he could communicate on the radio the way that he could look at the American people and talk about them like he was their father. 
And of course, a big part of Reagan's ideology was this question of tax cuts. If you lower taxes, you will experience a boom. And that's what he taught. And most of the people that have come to age politically in the conservative tradition, they cite him. They were raised with him. If you're in your 40s, you grew up with him. Um, If you're in your 50s and 60s, uh, you likely voted for him and saw the rise of the Reagan ideology. And nearly everything that would, you would look at, you would say, well, why? Of course that's true. We had a situation in 1980 where our tax rate was near 70%. And that was down from a tax rate of nearly 90% in the early 60s and late 50s before John F. Kennedy reduced it to 70%. And we saw during the course of the Reagan period a tax cut from 70 of the top marginal rate to 50. And over the course of those next several years, we saw a huge economic boom. And doesn't that always explain the taxes? If you lower them, there's a boom. Now, I'm not here to argue that there is no relationship between taxes and economic activity. That's not my argument. What I chafe against and what has caused so much damage in our current situation is this notion that if you lower taxes, automatically you're going to get increased economic activity. We do not see that in state after state after state after state. We don't. And in fact, it begs the question, what would happen if we let them implement every single idea, and that is the conservative, the Koch Institute people, what would happen if we actually implemented all of their ideas? We lowered taxes to an astonishingly low level, and we would increase and cut or cut nearly all social services. Wouldn't we anticipate that you would see a tremendous boom? Well, gosh, you know, sometimes I think, I feel like Dinesh D'Souza, the great conservative philosopher and commentator, that sometimes I feel like I'm a mosquito in a nudist colony. I don't even know where to begin to start. I mean, we could just sort of have a potpourri of ideas and look at Minnesota, high-tax state, one of the most dynamic, successful economic powerhouses in the United States. Historically, the state of Wisconsin, high-tax state, a progressive idea, some of the most highest standard of living, strongest economy in the United States. California, high-tax state, boom after boom after boom. Washington, deep blue, Amazon, tech, Microsoft, high wages, economic powerhouse. Boston, New York City. But friends, we're going to actually get into analysis there is actually an even more clear demonstration of this. We all know about what's the matter with Kansas. Um, You've heard about that. And in 2012, the the Kansas legislature was essentially, they had Governor Sam Brownback, one of the leading conservatives of the last 25 years in Kansas, who had a conservative legislature. And they, they thought, and they bought into this Kool-Aid that if you were to reduce taxes by over 13%, that you would create this economic boom. 
Now, mind you, had they even done cursory analysis, they would have known that this would not happen, especially at the state level. Keep in mind that the state is a part of 50 other states and more likely dependent upon national trends. So, yes, taxes are to some degree marginally important, but are they the key driver of growth? Well, let's see what happened in Kansas, which is just so compelling. And my site for this is um, Peter Fisher wrote a, and he's a person from the Iowa Policy Project at the University of Iowa. He wrote a book called the letter, uh, sorry, a, a paper called "The Lessons of Kansas." Um, you can find this on the Iowa Policy Project website. Um, he's a professor of economics at the University of Iowa. Does a lot of public policy analysis. And in his paper, his 2017 paper, he looks at the performance of, of Kansas. What happened? Kansas, over the course of the net five years following or the four years following its tax cut of nearly 13%, what happened? What's well, very interesting to see what happened. In the 11 years preceding that tax cut from 2001 to 2012, Kansas had an annual percentage growth in GDP of 1.7% versus 1.5% for the rest of the United States. So in other words, Kansas exceeded the growth rate of the nation of a whole, of the nation as a whole. What happened after that tax cut? And the, and the source of this is the Bureau of Economic Analysis Real GDP by State. What happened after this tax cut from 2013 to 2016? You would have expected that Kansas, representing pure ideology and conservative economics, would experience a boom. Instead, they experience a bust. From 2013, they flipped places with the rest of the United States, seeing nearly only a growth of GDP for 1% versus 2% of the United States. In other words, pre-tax cut, they experienced growth exceeding the rest of the United States. Post-tax cut, they exceeded, they, they fell short of the rest of the United States. A very clear demonstration. Now, of course, a lot of you have studied economics and you know that there are, you know, does one example make a case made? And some of you are like, oh my God, this is so dull. Why are you going into this? You're responding to your potential boredom if you're listening to me on your walk. Well, it's important that we do because one of the key arguments that conservatives make is we're right on economics. Trust us for the business. And a core part of that are the taxes. It's a boring topic, but extremely important. You may say, well, you're cherry picking. But if you look at the history of the last hundred years... And you think about the bus, the economic disasters, when do they typically occur? Well, in nearly every case, almost to a fault, in nearly 100% of the cases, economic disaster follows free market Economics. It's a boom and bust. The crash of 1929. 
the stock market crash of 1987. The stock market crash and the collapse of the economic system in 2008. And I would argue very shortly you will see a similar outcome with the politics of Donald Trump. It's important when we look at this that this is something that is very essential to their argument. And if you can't prove it with facts, why should we trust you? And the reason why this is important, because if you look at the impact of the damage that is done to a lot of rural places because of this free market ideology, the consequences are disastrous. What happens when you cut taxes? You have less revenue. Remember, friends, prior to Ronald Reagan... Republican politicians like Gerald Ford, Richard Nixon, yeah, there were discussions on taxes and economic growth. I mean, that was certainly a part of it, but they really weren't looking at it as a lever to growth. It was a function of revenue. It was a man named Arthur Laffer from Stanford University that said, no, if you would cut taxes, you would not only grow and boom the economy, you would increase revenue so much so that you could eat your cake and have it too. Even though we've almost never, that's never happened. Every time you allow this tax-cutting ideology to occur, guess what happens? The deficit increases. And as a result of that, you see reductions in funding, in our public university system. You see high schools consolidated because there's not enough revenue. You see teachers that aren't able to get paid what they're worth because there just isn't enough money. You see public payrolls diminished because there isn't isn't enough revenue. And this is something that is completely avoidable. It is not inevitable that we cannot solve what's happening in these rural places One of the things that, if you look at and what's happened in our rural places, is population decline. And I want you to conduct an experiment with me. Go to virtually any Wikipedia page in a rural place in the state of Iowa or Wisconsin and look at the population trends. With the exception of a few population centers near big cities, in nearly every rural place, you'll see a population peak in around 1970 to 1975, which was generally the end of a new deal. And since that time, you'll see constant decline as our rural places empty out. This is just one example of how wrong the ideology is. But the question really begs the question, why is that? Is that just because it just happened? Or was it policy-related? Well, certainly if you look at the population decline in terms of rural struggle, in terms of um, less family farms and more corporate agriculture, it does coincide with the last 40 years in which we've been enveloped in this flawed and dysfunctional ideology where wages go down, the social fabric unravels, 
and people are in pain. And what happens when people are in pain? They look for saviors. They look for traveling salesmen. The great Huey P. Long talked about the traveling salesman. The high papa lorum and the low papa hiram coming to town on his banjo, offering a silver tonic to, to treat all cures and to solve every problem. And the Republicans offer high papa lorum. And the Democrats offer low papa hiram. And they really don't really solve anything. And they're basically no different from the root down all the way up to that top of that tree. And yet we, we continue searching for these saviors. And when you get people in fear, and when you get them desperate enough, they, they say, what the hell do we have to lose? Well, who said that? Donald James Trump. It's extremely dangerous, the path that we're on. And that's why it's so important that we figure out and that we not be part of this problem. Because if we don't provide an alternative, then we are to blame. And I could go on and on and on, so much so that you guys would be bored to death. I would be like that teacher in Ferris Bueller, anyone, anyone, anyone. But it's important that we dive into these. Because, and if you're still here, by the way, good for you. You actually want to learn something. You have an attention span greater than an eighth grader. I'm very impressed. Write in if you've actually gotten this far. But I could go on and on. Trade policy, economic policy, farm policy, racial justice policy, this firearm policy. These policies aren't just bad. They're mind-blowingly bad. They don't even withstand any type of scrutiny at all. So what's going on here? We have an ideology and a, po- a set of policies that has failed time after time after time. We're not dealing with an economic problem. We're dealing with an emotional problem. We as human beings are not motivated. We are not rational creatures. We are visceral creatures. We are evolved on the savannas of Africa. That's where we all came from. We have emotions. We have fight or flight. We have fears. We have hopes. We have loves. We have dreams. And this is what we must connect with. And we must identify leaders that connect with what Abraham Lincoln called the mystic chords of memory, those mystic parts of this country that resonate with all of us, that we can tap deeply into. And if we touch those chords, we will change things. And more quickly than you know. So let's think about that. What are some of the emotional um, touchstones that progressives, I think, have really failed to, to identify. Some of you know this on maybe a superficial level, um, but we're still not seeing, I am not seeing at our state level, 
um, or on our national level, a true understanding of this. Other than that, at a very superficial level, you know, here in Iowa City, occasionally you hear people say, ah, geez, what are you just saying that it's just a bunch of rural white people? Is that what you're saying? We got to care about them? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that we really need to figure this out because if we don't, there's going to be more and more damage because these policies aren't bad. They're really bad. But what's even worse is that given the breathtaking inadequacy of these policies, why do we keep losing? So let's have that conversation. So I think the big umbrella issues are, remember I talked about the emotional touchstones? We absolutely have to know, in our rural places, what are the emotional fabrics that bind these communities together? And especially a lot of rural Iowa, rural Wisconsin, and a lot of rural places throughout this great country. I think the first thing that we really have to identify is, is especially in our rural places, a lot of Christianity. Now, I am someone who am not an overly religious person. I did not go to church for 20 years and only recently reconnected with my Lutheran faith. Uh, I go to church. I love the tradition, but I I certainly don't uh, identify as an evangelical. I love a lot of my atheist friends. I love a lot of my Muslim brothers and sisters. So I don't want anyone to get defensive here. I'm not celebrating Christianity to the virtue uh, or to the exclusion of anything else. But what I'm saying is, is that at least in a lot of our rural places, there are a lot of people of the Christian faith that at least right now, and that may change the future, are huge voting blocks. And I think we have really not figured that out. And I have not seen any progressives or any Democrats appeal to them except in a very superficial way. And I think that's really too bad. You know, we assume now that Christians have always been conservative, right? And that they've always been politically engaged. Well, that's not true. This is a relatively recent phenomenon, beginning in about 1980, is where there was this real understanding on the part of a lot of conservatives that there's a lot of people of faith that really should be in our corner. And they really started to court them. There was a lot of members of the Catholic faith that were traditional Democrats and, in fact, were pro-life Democrats. There was used to be a fairly big block of pro-life Democrats, uh, primarily Catholic voters. And this is something that I think we have to address because I think for the most part, If we don't, we have very little opportunity to recapture a lot of our rural places because we're not respecting their culture. Culture is important. It does not have to be a toxic term. And you know who, ironically, I think understood it the best, who I think we really need to reconnect with is our friend Jimmy Carter. You know, because there is this tradition within Christianity of of social gospel. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr in the early 20th century Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, one of the great Lutheran theologians, uh, connected with a lot of the social justice movements in New York in the 1930s before he went back to Europe to confront fascism. But Jimmy Carter, I think, was a born-again Christian, 
and he wasn't shy about it. And how often do we see that now in the Democratic Party? You don't see it too much. There are a lot of progressive Christians out there, but they're so self-aware. They're so unwilling to share their opinion that it's almost as if they're, they're, they're so meek that they, that they don't have any impact. You know, I love the Lutheran Church. I love you Lutherans. I do. I love your, love your hymns. And I can, I can be hard on the Lutherans because I am one. I love your hymns. I love your music. I love your choral music. But sometimes you, you do not speak boldly enough. And I think as a result of that, this entire political ideology in terms of Christianity, it has been almost ceded completely to the Jerry Falwell types and the Franklin Graham types. And that's really too bad because there is a biblical textual support for the notion that this is one of the most progressive ideologies in the last 20 years, 2,000 years. And we need to recapture that tradition and reconnect and honor. And even if we don't, and we decide to scrunch our nose and say, well, we're not going to believe in, in the rural places. Friends, we have to honor and respect these cultures. Because if we scrunch our nose and suck on those lemons and criticize these rural places without offering meaningful solutions, we're never going to win their hearts. Because I think that's what it comes down to. And that's what Jimmy Carter understood. He was a born-again Christian. He could go into those gospel churches could share his faith in an unapologetic way. And I think that's so important because in the South in particular, we have the situation where we have almost a whole segment of our country that we have almost no opportunity to win over until we're able to really connect meaningful, meaningfully with a lot of Southern evangelical Christians of a progressive bent. And they're there especially a lot of the millennials, uh, especially a lot of the social gospel folks. I know a lot of Southerners here, they're not that religious in Iowa City, um, but they're very progressive. So this notion that you cannot uh, attract large numbers of Christian progressives just isn't true. And we need to speak about and not be share, afraid about sharing our faith and expressing who we are as a person. And if you believe in Christ, you're not afraid to share that opinion. And you know what, Jimmy Carter, you know, it's unfortunate that Jimmy was such an ineffective president, because he was. He was nothing compared to Ronald Reagan. Indecisive, got immersed in the details, good heart, but just didn't really have the experience necessary to transform the country. But if you look at his rise, how many things he was right about, appealing to the basic decency of people, that winning toothy smile that he had in all those photos... His big lug brother, Billy, remember Billy? Billy had Billy Beer, and Billy was like that, that brother that everyone sort of wants to forget about. But gosh, don't you want to drink that beer with Billy? And his positive attitude, his belief in that restorative power of, of salvation, that things can be better, that the American people are basically fundamentally decent people. He was onto something. And we really have not, since his defeat in 1980, we have not really reconnected with a lot of the people that Jimmy so successfully appealed to. So I think it's important we really figure that out. 
But the second part of the emotional problem that we have is our connection with the United States military. You know, I supported Bernie Sanders, and I love Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. I love the progressive movement. But I very, very rarely see full-throated defenses of the American military. And that's really too bad, because I think the American military is one of the, the, the greatest engines for social justice in this great United States of America. It helped us defeat slavery. It helped us throw off the yoke of British oppression. We defeated fascism. We held the line on Stalinist communism. It has provided more opportunity for more people than almost any institution in the United States. It's advanced more racial justice than almost any other institution in the United States. It has elevated the condition of so many people and provided opportunity in a way that puts every other social justice program to shame. And why does it do that? Because it instills teamwork, it instills discipline, it provides children and kids the opportunity for discipline and a foundation for further success in life. And yet, how often do we celebrate that? The world is full of bad people. We need to be tough. We need to know that we have a commander-in-chief that when times get tough will stand up for us and will defend our country. We don't need to apologize for that. And I think why is it that so many progressives are turned off by the military? Well, obviously because of what happened in Vietnam. One of the most disgusting policy mistakes that we've made in the last 200 years of our country and a total stain But friends, we should never, ever blame the men and women that went over there to fight in one of the worst, most misguided wars in our country. Probably the, obviously the the only more misguided were the, the Southerners. But it was pretty bad. But those working class, many of whom were drafted, did not want to go over and fight. And yet they carry the stain of this policy decision. And I think more recently, although I I don't think there's been as much baggage, George Bush's decision to go to Iraq, I think that was something that he could have, you know, there wasn't necessarily the lasting impact on that. But we need to have a full-throated defense of the American military. And we also need to identify what really, how we're marketing ourselves I'm going to give some free marketing advice to all the political campaigns that are trying to win a national election. You don't even have to pay me. You just got me. If you can credit me, you you can. Have you seen one Democratic ad with a country song? Are we really saying that there's no country progressives out there? Have we seen one progressive advertisement with some gospel? Have we seen that? No. No. I think we need to appeal to the emotional, mystic chords of these rural places. Now, you can scrunch your nose and be super self-aware and say that I'm just appealing to certain segments. That's fine. You can do that. But I think that decision of scrunching your nose and sucking on lemons without an offering your own solution has caused a lot of damage too because it's allowed this flawed ideology to have greater impact than it should. 
We need to have that. And finally, in terms of this emotional part of it, you know, because I think if we get that good country song, it's going to do a lot. We're going to feel good. We're going to connect. We're going to connect with their hearts as well as their head. Because I'm a firm believer that in terms of what really persuades you, before your head can be persuaded, you have to have your heart. We need to appeal to those country voters, those NASCAR voters, or else we're not going to win. And finally, we really have to do a better job. I mean, race is something that I struggle with as a white person. I mean, how do you how do you even begin to talk about with all of the horrible racial injustice that's occurred in this United States of America? As a white person, where do you even begin to talk? I get nervous even talking about it right now. It's hard with all the pain and all the injustice. How do, how do we begin to even be able to talk about it? Well, I, my belief is we have to talk about it. We have to express these ideas. We have to share opinions. But a lot of times what happens, especially in the college campuses, is that you get a rural kid from, let's say, Boondocks, Iowa. And they're the first generation to go to college and they're raised in a fairly conservative household and they've never seen a person of color. They don't have any malice in their heart. But they may say something a little bit ignorant or uh, something in a college discussion that maybe is not altogether that uh, effective or they, they say something, but it's clear that it's, 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 it's ignorant, but it's not, there's no malice. They say something like, we live in a colorblind society uh, and that race really shouldn't matter. Or they say something like blue lives matter. And there's all sorts of problems with that. We know that there are. So I'm not here to, to, to defend that particular line of inquiry. But someone that says that, are they an out-and-out racist if they say blue lives matter? I think they're clueless. And I'll have the discussion with them. And I'll explain the history and pain, the origins of the Black Lives Matter. But does that make them, if they say that, and if they are, are we going to write off every single person who makes such a statement as an out-and-out racist? Are we going to win? Are we going to win those hearts and minds? I don't think we're going to. because, And I think calling and attacking people with names makes us feel good, but it doesn't really accurately explain things very well. And what I'd really bring up is is how quickly certain world places transform from Obama counties to Trump counties. Now, Trump is a very fascinating figure for a lot of reasons, but how is it that there are these counties throughout the United States that supported Barack, Barack Hussein Obama for eight years, who, by the way, is one of my personal heroes for eight years, two times, and then swung to Trump. What? How the heck did that happen? I think we need to study those counties. And I think we need to appeal and, 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 and discuss what made those voters switch from Barack Obama to Donald J. Trump. The information is standing there right in front of us. And I would commend you to a recent article that I read by Peter um, Kruger, uh, which was in a Quora forum. Um, and basically, the title of the article is what 
quote-unquote liberals don't understand about rural places. And he covers a lot of really, really good things, many of which I've discussed today. Uh, but I think I would commend you to that article because I think that will give you a very much of a sense of what needs to happen. And, of course, he's overly descriptive in terms of quote, who are quote-unquote liberals. I think a lot of times liberals can be sort of a, uh, a bogey person, a straw, or, uh, straw person argument that doesn't necessarily um, really resonate with stuff. But let, let me also focus on what happened with Carson King. To me, more than anything else, and I don't want to get into this question of pro-Carson, anti-Carson, is per Carson a good guy, is Carson a bad guy? And I'm not here to discuss that today. And as many of you remember, Carson was this kid who uh, asked for beer money via Venmo, and he got a flood of money. And within a week or so, he had raised you know, a million or two bucks for a local children's hospital here in the city of Iowa City. Um, and it was a really feel-good story. And about two weeks after that happened, we had a uh, reporter with the Des Moines Register that discovered that he had made some racially insensitive comments when he was 16. Blew up the state of Iowa, nearly blew up Ragbri. You either pro-Carson, anti-Carson, you either loved the Des Moines Register reporter or you hated him. So that's not what I'm talking about. But I heard so many of my friends who were a little bit know-it-alls and, hey, hey, friends, love you. Takes one to know one. But they they basically accused that if you thought Carson was a good guy uh, and, and the Des Moines Register person was a, a reporter was a bad guy, if you said that, you were racist. You were bad. You were clueless. If that is the approach that we're going to take, we are going to write off an entire segment of this culture. Sorry, not sorry. That is not going to be the way that we are going to win in this particular United States. We can have a discussion about that, and I fall on the side of the register in this particular case. I think the reporter... Does everyone need to have a, a gotcha analysis of what happened when you were 16, especially where the person shows contrition like Carson did? He admitted that what he had said earlier on Twitter when he was 16 was wrong. But ultimately, if our discussions become so toxic that we can't even have a conversation, and, th- and this I think is on progressives, I just think so often we lecture. You know, one of the things that drives me nuts, and you ever see that on Facebook where Someone needs to educate their father about why they shouldn't why they shouldn't listen to Rush Limbaugh. They need to educate their parents about why they should believe this or why they should believe why. I'm telling you, people, these people, I don't I don't agree with them, but a lot of people listen to Rush Limbaugh, and I think we just need to. I think Rush is not a great person, but. He is entertaining, and and if we're going to throw everyone who's listened to Rush Limbaugh and call them a racist or that they're horrible people, we're not going to get anywhere. And, you know, this ultimately is going to be a debate. You're free to disagree with that. It's a free country. But I think we need to have love in our hearts and forgiveness with our, with our actions so that we can truly develop healing and reconciliation in this country. You know, one candidate that I really liked that a lot of people didn't was Marianne Williamson, sort of the— new age guru that decided she want to run for president. I don't know whether she wanted to run just to sell some books or what, but 
One of the things that she said during the campaign is that people didn't vote for Donald Trump because of he had a plan. They voted him because he offered these solutions to the very complex pain and problems that they faced. They voted out of pain, not because of a policy. And she said, what the country really needs is this process of forgiveness and reconciliation. And that really resonated with me. I think that's something that this culture really, truly, sorely needs. And you may say, well, there you go. You're just this idealistic person. It's not realistic. It can't happen. But friends, it can. And, you know, one of the most effective leaders of the last hundred years, one of the greatest human beings in the history of the world, is Nelson Mandela, the great liberator of his people in South Africa, who was unjustly incarcerated for 27 years because of his effort to free his people from a racist and horrible and evil ideology. He was incarcerated wrongfully and unjustly. And after you being in prison for 27 years, what would your feeling be once you had been liberated? Would it be only natural to feel revenge? To pay someone back? To spread the pain that you endured? What did Nelson Mandela do when he got out? Did he take revenge? No. He had this radiant smile, love in his heart, and one of the first acts he took along with Desmond Tutu and countless others, was a a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to bring people together. Now, in order to get immunity for the crimes that were committed under the racist apartheid state, people had to come clean. They had to admit. In the Christian tradition, we call it confessing your sins before you can get forgiveness. And that's what they did. Now, has everything been pure, smooth sailing in South Africa for the last 30 years? No, it has not. There's been a lot of challenges, but they've made a ton of progress. And those of you who grew up during the time period of apartheid, did any one of you think that we'd be able to have a non-racist South African state without a complete bloodbath? And they achieved that. A Truth and Reconciliation Commission after nearly 45 years of a horrible system. And they achieved freedom for the people. I think that's what this culture needs, is a Truth and Reconciliation Commission with our rural places to discuss possible reparations. Over slavery... But I don't think we can really get there as a country while we have malice in our heart and hate towards people that look differently than than us. And I think both sides need to approach this with a spirit of reconciliation and forgiveness. We never really did have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission after slavery. 
And as a result, we have this giant wound that still festers the fire of racial injustice. We've had some great leaders that have helped us get through that. But that is something that I think we need to do. And and I think for some of those Republicans that we get so angry at, we need to have forgiveness in our hearts. And I'm as guilty of it as anyone. I get frustrated, you know, with my study of history, with the analysis, you know, with my view of the damage that's done. I'm as guilty as anyone in terms of the frustration that I feel. But I think if we approach our rural places and our Republican brothers and sisters with a spirit of forgiveness and love in our hearts, that will not be a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. And I think that's where we really need to do is in these, in these rural places, we need to go out, we need to listen, we need to gain their trust, we need to pray, we need to forgive and see what the source of their pain is so we can seek renewal. But I don't only want to be a downer here. I think we have had some historical leaders that have been able to move from the progressive side in a very, very quick way. So a lot of times, sometimes it seems like change is going to take forever, and it can happen more quickly than you than you think. I mean, one of the amazing things that has happened in the Republican Party is how quickly they have changed on key policy platforms. I mean, the notion of protectionism. They have run on low tariffs for the last 40 years, and when this, within the scope of 18 months, Trump had them all sounding like Ross Perot on trade policy. It can happen very, very quickly if you have leadership as far as that goes. Now, I'm not a fan of Trump's leadership, um, but I, I do believe that tariffs are essential to protect unfair competition uh, from other countries that don't have the same labor standards that we do. It's, you can get change quickly, so we need to have hope. And some leaders that I would identify that have been extremely effective historically are none other than Governor Harold Hughes, one of the great progressive leaders of the late 20th century, an Iowa governor in a very conservative state. It wasn't that Iowa was just some you know radical progressive state in the 60s. Yes, there were some progressive movements, but I think what made him so compelling was is he was not from Polk County. He was not from Johnson County. He was from Ida Grove, western Iowa. He was a trucker. He had flaws. Harold Hughes, for those of you who don't know, you should know Harold Hughes. In the early 50s, his life was so on a string that he literally got into the bathtub. He was a recovering alcoholic, or an alcoholic at the time, and was within a second of blowing his brains out in the bathtub because he was so addicted to alcohol. Some of it was probably post-traumatic stress. He served with distinction in, the, in World War II. But he literally went from nearly blowing his brains out to by the end of the 1960s being one of the most inspirational leaders in the United States, anti-Vietnam, progressive in his politics. If you can imagine this with Harold Hughes, Harold Hughes sometimes took calls while governor of the state of Iowa from people that were suicidal, and he would run and pray with them. He was evangelical, which I don't think we necessarily have to be evangelical, but I, but I do think that that, that, that is something that um, for him, was something that's very natural and organic. So, and so, and for some of you, you know, atheist friends of mine, hey, I love you. I, I think we could have a great atheist leader too. I'm not saying that, or a Muslim. I love my Muslim brothers and sisters too. 
Buddhist brothers and sisters. But I think in this particular case, I cite his Christianity merely to state that it was authentic to him and he wasn't afraid to share his faith. And I don't think we should be. Uh, Jimmy Carter talked about we have separation of church and state, uh, and so we can do both at the same time. We can honor our secular lives as well as our spiritual traditions. I'd mentioned, uh, and the other thing about Harold Hughes that I really liked was his connection to a lot of the Republican leadership. During Watergate, he became really good friends with uh, Chuck Colson, the, the hatchet man from the Nixon administration. He also became incredibly good friends with Al Quie, the governor, Republican governor of uh, Illinois, who at the time I think was serving in Congress. And they had a inter-party faith group where they um, worked together, prayed together across party lines. Charismatic figure, and he was able to lead the state of Iowa through some and do some great things. That's when the community colleges uh, were implemented in the state of Iowa. So many great things that happened. Jimmy Carter, I've also mentioned. In a relatively short period of time, he went from governor to president of the United States. We talked about him. Huey P. Long. Now, Huey, don't get me wrong, Huey had his flaws. Uh, he was a great governor in Louisiana in the 1920s. And he eventually became senator and was a rival to FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in the 30s, and ultimately assassinated in Louisiana um, by, a, by an assassin. So there's a lot of flaws with Huey. He did get a little power hungry. But what I like about Huey is he was extremely colorful. He had a sense of humor. You know, one of the things I think that the thing with, I think, a lot of progressives is for whatever reason, we've lost our sense of humor. We take ourselves so seriously. And I think that's something we really need to work on. Somehow we've been able to capture that late night space with Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert and others. But for whatever reason, we have not been able to be effective on radio. We have not been able to really capture the Fox News audience. And I think that's important. Why, why does Fox work so well? Instead of hating them all the time, what do they do well? Well, they're, they're funny. They're entertaining. Let's learn from that. And so Huey was funny. I mean, go on YouTube and listen to him. He was charismatic. Reagan was funny. Reagan had a lot of sense of humor. We need to not take ourselves so seriously. If you look at the great leaders of the last hundred years, especially our presidential leaders, the ones that were really successful were the ones that had a sense of humor and charisma. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Barack Obama, Ronald Reagan. The ones who were not successful or not as uh, favorably viewed in history were dour characters. William Howard Taft. Calvin Coolidge. Herbert Hoover. Look at Herbert, and he was just always scowling. To a large degree, Nixon had a certain type of charisma, but he was sort of a brooding figure. Trump, ultimately, we'll see what will happen with him, but he, I guess, has a certain type of charisma. But I want to also identify, I think, one local congresswoman who I think has done extremely effective. I think she really has her finger on what works. Now, this may be... Now, the question for this particular leader is, how, how does what we can learn from her... How can we translate that into other political campaigns? Is there anything we can bottle up, or is that just due to her unique political talent? I think it's probably a little bit of both. But the person I'm thinking of is Abby Finkenauer, uh, the congresswoman in our northeast part of the state. I believe it's our first congressional district. She has been extraordinarily effective at mixing, I think, traditional elements 
of the democratic base. Unions, working class people, uh, traditional blue dog Democrats, and a lot of the social justice uh, wing of the Democratic Party. She very effectively synthesized all those together. And more importantly as well, I I think a lot of these sort of Pete Buttigieg uh, suburban progressives, I think really where a lot of these elections come out is really two things. How do, how do these progressive areas and suburbs, how, do they, how are they motivated to vote? And also, how are these working-class blue-collar people, um, how, how are they actually motivated to vote? I think Abby really put her finger on what I think really is going to uh, provide a template moving forward. So I think that's some good news. We do have some people that are on the right track. I think, unfortunately, though, we still have too many people with just too much negative negativity, too many negative Nellies out there. And we need to have a little humility and approach this with a little, a little humility in our hearts so that we can really learn because there's really, there's no reason we should be shy. We should be expanding the university of Iowa. We should be getting universal health care. We should be having safe drinking water, expanding our regenerative agricultural systems and our family farms increasing our infrastructure. Friends, these are things that we can all have, but we can't have them while we're scrunching our nose. We can't have them with malice in our hearts, and we can't have them if we're not willing to forgive our both our enemies um, as well as the people that we disagree with, the people that have wronged us. So that's why it's really important for us to, to move forward with, with openness in our hearts. So, friends, we've almost made it to the end of our first hour. Are you still here if you are? Let me know on the RockneyCast at gmail.com. This show is welcome to feedback. I'm going to, keep the, I'm going to keep these episodes at about an hour apiece, which is a lot. But this is something where you can break down, you can listen, you can, you can put on for 20 minutes. So however you want to listen to it, it's fine with, fine with me. Now, not every episode is going to be about politics, as I told you during the original show, is that this is going to be a show on whatever I, Rock, and Cole find interesting. And so we're going to cover a lot of different topics. So uh, up next, uh, one of the things that we're going to discuss is how do we decide amidst information uncertainty or, or not having enough information? It's a very interesting topic. I think it's, it's very um, on point with what we're experiencing right now with the COVID virus. Uh, but this is something I think we really have to get right, because if we don't, uh, we're not going to make good decisions. So how do we decide when we don't have enough time or information to make a decision? It's an interesting topic. We're also going to discover and, and, and discuss other uh, topics, including why you should read Moby Dick. We're going to have a show on the leadership qualities of some of our great leaders like George Washington, Harry Truman, Abraham Lincoln. The topics are going to be a lot of fun, and we're going to have a lot of fun. But before we go, we're going to give you some book recommendations so you can learn. Because remember, you cannot learn unless you read. If you don't take time to read, I don't know about you. So this show is a bunch of readers. So what should be on your reading list is first The Fall of Wisconsin, The Conservative Conquest of a Progressive Bastion by Daniel Kaufman. The other one would be Catherine Kramer, The Politics of Resentment. 
Now, both of these books, I think, are absolutely critical to our to our discussion. Uh, so I think you really need to read that. I think a lot of Democrats should be reading that. And finally, Art Cullen, uh, his recent book on Storm Lake, uh, that is something that you should also be covering as well. So that is the end of our second show. So we're going to continue on with these podcasts. And let me know if there's some other topics or feedback or suggestions you have for the show, because this ultimately is your show, too. It doesn't exist without you. And so we want to make sure that we're being as entertaining as we can. If we go a little long sometimes, you can let me know. But we're going to have a lot of fun. And thank you to the listener to spending the time with me today. And until our next show, I'm looking forward to our next Rockney cast. Thank you so much. Thank you.